Hello, I'm Vaishnavi Palapotu. And I'm Kirti Jayakumar. Welcome to the Feminifesto podcast. Where we speak to women from around the world who work in politics, international relations, peace building, development, law and diplomacy. Join us in this journey for your fortnightly fix with plenty of food for thought, moving conversations and the stories of some epic women in their own words. In episode 60 of the Feminifesto podcast, Kirti and I speak to Lisa Shannon, an activist, movement founder and author from the United States of America. Lisa Shannon is the co-founder and CEO of the Every Woman Treaty. She's a human rights activist and scholar known for initiating campaigns in the international women's movement, including founding Run for Congo Women and co-founding the first sexual violence crisis center in Mogadishu, Sister Somalia. as well as the successful 45000 penny Congo conflict minerals campaign against technology giants Intel Apple and Hewlett Packard Lisa's work has been profiled in multiple appearances in the New York Times Runner's World The Oprah Magazine and so many more outlets do take a listen thank you so much for joining us on the feminifesto podcast miss lisa it's such a pleasure to have you here my pleasure thanks for including me Thank you. So the first question I have for you today is um what set you on the path to work for women's rights? You know, it's such an interesting question and I have to say over time my answer has changed and I didn't even think I knew um even up until a few months ago what the actual catalyst was. So um I started working in the international women's rights movement about 15 years ago when i you know listened to and watched an episode of oprah on women in the congo and i was shocked to learn that it was the deadliest war since world war 2 the worst sexual violence on the planet and yet i'd never heard of it and in the united states at that time there was no coverage of this war. It was 8 years in, like 4 million people had died at that point and no one was talking about it, which was shocking to me. Um so just listening to women's stories there, I felt I wanted to do something. I wasn't quite sure what the recommendation they had on the program was to sponsor an individual woman in the Congo through an organization called Women for Women International who work with women survivors of war. And so I signed up to sponsor too because I wanted to do a little something extra but you know it it nagged at me and I felt I wanted to do something more so I started asking around to my friends like hey you know what if we did like a fundraising walk or something but nobody had really heard of the Congo um or the conflict in the Congo and it was almost like it was it was almost like they 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 thought I must have missed something right that there must be a reason no one's talking about it and that I'm on this kind of like wild tear so i decided okay if i'm going to do something i've got to do it by myself and i jumped in and decided to do this 30 mile trail run again i think you know for me i didn't i didn't think at the moment that i was completely changing my life and going to be a global women's rights activist i owned a stock photography production company at the time um was in a long term relationship and my life you know was i thought kind of set i just thought i was going to do this one thing um but what ended up happening was as i jumped in 
uh, I wanted to raise $10,000 and I ended up raising $28,000 the first year because of media. I ended up uh, in the local paper, people started sending checks. So I felt very encouraged. And then I started getting photos and letters from women in the Congo who we had supported. And even though it was just a little, the size of a postage stamp, the photo of them, I started to feel like I had friends there and that we had a, a relationship. They thought of me as their sister and that, that sort of changed everything for me. And so the work grew from there. Um, I started doing a lot of advocacy work for the Congo and we can talk more about that. But when I say what started my work that is the story I would have told you 10 years ago as the beginning of the work. But it's interesting as I've backtracked, <laughs> my first job out of college was actually working in a domestic violence shelter in my hometown of Portland, Oregon. And I traveled to Russia, interestingly, when I was uh, 16. And I took a video camera and I went around and asked all these Russian women, do you have sexism here? And they didn't have a word for sexism, but I was trying to kind of discern that when I was 16. And then I traveled to India by myself when I was 16 for about nine months and lived in Tamil Nadu around Pondicherry and had a, just a lot of exposure to just a completely different, you know, life frame and experience as well. So I think those early experiences had a big impact. Again, the big surprise for me has been that I would have told you it was those experiences, meeting women in shelters or hearing about women in Congo. But, you know, I've been citing this statistic for quite some time that I, I think almost all of us know at this point, one out of three women are survivors of domestic violence or uh, uh, sexual assault. And often I would say that, you know, we all know someone, there's someone close to us who's a survivor. We may not even know it, but they are. <laughs> I had a conversation with my mother like two, three months ago. And in the course of the conversation, my sister, had heard her, her sisters, my aunts, say something about an incident that happened when she was quite young, like eight, when she was living in England. So I asked her about it. Well, it turns out my mom was gang raped when she was eight years old. And I had no idea. And when I asked her about it, you know, because my mom, she's someone who's seen therapists her whole life. She's been a meditator, very introspective, all of those things. I'm like, well, mom, that's very serious trauma. Have you talked to a therapist about this? And she said, um, she said, oh no. I mean, things like that happen to every girl. Everyone can expect that. <laughs> I have been a career feminist. <laughs> you know, you could say 15 years, you could say 25 years, you could say 30 years, depending on how you count it. My mom has been at my side, like through all of Run for Congo Women, she was there rooting for women in the Congo. I had no idea. I, I, I was shocked. And so for me, you know, and I have to say by extension, I had a similar experience when I was 35. I went to speak on the Congo, what was happening for women in the Congo um, in, 
in Washington State in the United States. Uh, and there's a there's a road, the I-5 highway, a freeway, that's a, apparently a big corridor for trafficking. And so the people who picked me up had been working on trafficking. They were sharing that with me. And as they described the grooming process and how trafficking works in, in this part of the world, they described a process that was exactly what happened to my 14-year-old sister when I was 12. And up until that moment, I had not known was an attempt at trafficking, which, you know, fortunately, by the time it, um, before money was exchanged hands, I will say, uh, it was interrupted, but not before a tremendous amount of trauma was inflicted. So right when I was at the age where I was hitting puberty, I was seeing my sister objectified, degraded, traumatized. But the whole frame was she's making bad choices, right? Shame for her making these bad choices because there's a very deep manipulation that happens as the trafficking process plays out here, right? Um, and so again, I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, here I am working on the horrible things that are happening to women in the Congo. <laughs> and that these things have happened in my own family to the people who are very closest to me. And so, so it's tricky that question of origin because you know, for years I would have said, well, I saw this episode of Oprah, but I was right based on <laughs> you know, a whole family history that has had a profound impact on my life. And I didn't even know it. I didn't even, I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that you know, when you have a parent who has that kind of trauma, that shows up and it changes your life. And if you watch your sister, you know, go through that right at the age that you're coming into your own sense of what it means to be a young woman, it changed everything. So for me, you know, when I was 12, 13, I, you know, before that, I'd been kind of like a trendy dresser and wanted to look all cute. I stopped head to toe, head to toe tie dye, no makeup like had no interest in looking pretty at that point, because for me, being a girl wasn't safe. So my relationship with the world did from there, I shifted to like, I'm all about, you know, politics and meaning and driving at something different and a career and all those things. So I split out what it was to be female into these kind of two buckets at that point and just decided I'm going to invest in this bucket, not this one, because it's the only way to stay safe. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that and for also being vulnerable on, 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 on all of those fronts, truly. I mean, I can't even imagine how, how difficult it must have been for your mom and then secondhand for you to listen to all that you went through. Um, Lisa, from there, you've gone on to do some really powerful campaigns uh, to support women, whether that was Run for Congo Women or a bunch of others. Um, take us through some of those campaigns. Sure. I think the biggest thing I would say about a lot of the campaigns <laughs> is that I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> I had no background in activism or organizing or anything like that. So I, it was fly by the seat of my pants and a total leap of faith. So beginning with Run for Congo Women saying, I'm going to go run this 30 miles. I hope people sign up to sponsor women in the Congo. I don't know how it's going to go. And then after I raised that initial money, we sort of grew it, took it on the road, and we tried to host events where, you know, we've had two people show up or 10 people show up, up to like 600 people show up. 
and press started to come in around that national press of the United States. But, you know, I wanted to raise a million dollars. And after five years, I had not. So I was frustrated. And then I get a phone call and I end up on the Oprah Winfrey show on the same show that Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan had their book, Half the Sky, if you're, uh, if your uh, listeners are familiar. And we raised $6 million in a week. Like after five years of like showing up at runs where nobody's there and there's like gale force winds and like, you know, just like really hard, long slog, so many house parties, and then boom, made our goal. And likewise, um, we, you know, one of the things that was fueling the conflict in the Congo was conflict minerals. So they're minerals that are in all of our cell phones uh, that come from the Congo and very little accountability. So there was proposed legislation in 2010 in the United States that tech companies would simply have to label their products as containing um, conflict minerals. And we learned at the time that big industry like Hewlett Packard, Apple, Intel were pushing back behind the scenes um, because they thought it would be, and I quote, too burdensome for industry. The cost would be too burdensome for industry. You know, and they're talking about their burden, this burden, which was estimated at one penny per finished electronics product versus the burden that say my sister in Congo, Generos, um, experienced when she had a militia cut off her leg and feed it to her children. So that was very upsetting to me. It was very upsetting to me, the notion that after you have held these children and hugged women and like danced together and they're your friends and your family, to have industry effectively say, your life isn't worth a penny to us like made my head explode. So my mom and I went out and got 45,000 pennies because about 45,000 people were estimated to die in Congo every month at the time. And we marched them over to Intel, which is in my backyard here in Portland. Um, and then we got in the car and drove to Silicon Valley, took the 45,000 pennies to Apple and Intel and Hewlett Packard, effectively offering to pay for the first month's worth of lives if that's too expensive for them, right? Um, <laughs> And again, media was very helpful because we ended up in national press, New York Times, um, uh, and uh, had a whole kerfuffle on Facebook uh, that led to some of that national press. It was amazing. I had this conflict with a PR lady in front of Apple. We showed up and we're like, we're here to see Steve Jobs. And they're like, Steve Jobs is kind of busy today. We're like, all right, well, we brought these pennies for him since obviously he needs them, right? Um, and this lady chases us out of the building, this PR lady, and she says, Apple doesn't have conflict minerals in our products. And I said, listen, if we're gonna have a dialogue here. We need to start by being honest. You've known for years you have conflict minerals in your products. So what the problem is, you've assumed no one cares. Well, you need to know those days are over. Like people care. It's going to be big, like it's going to be huge. And it's like me and my mom and this woman, Diane, we met from Facebook there with our pennies, like that's the huge splash. But because of the media that we got, Steve Jobs himself spoke out on conflict minerals for the first time. Um, we got all this national press and the, and, and the regulations passed intact. So, and then, so I'm just telling these sort of episodes so you can kind of see the through line here being also with, you know, I, 
one of the things I've always tuned into is this kind of like, I call it almost like a soul storm, like this uh-oh feeling when you run across something that feels really wrong, like not right. And kind of like nobody's doing anything about it, but it just doesn't sit well. And I think mostly we have learned to ignore that feeling. Like, well, there must be a reason, right? There must be a reason no one's talking about Congo. There must be, a, it's, it's probably just not possible that tech companies can do anything about those conflict minerals. And a, another instance of this was thinking about women in Somalia. Because at least in the United States, and I don't know what the dialogue is in other parts of the world, but after the Black Hawk Down incident in the early 90s, which was a helicopter, an American helicopter gets grounded and there's a big um, gun battle. A lot of American soldiers died. From that point forward, in the United States, at least, we were done with Somalia. And in, in the view of the world, it felt like Somalia was just kind of written off like the world's most failed state, chaos, lawlessness, not our problem, leave these people to do these things to each other. But I just have this feeling like, what's going on for women over there? Like it can't be good. I've been to Congo. I have a sense of what's going on there with, with Somalia, what's happening. And so through mutual friends ended up connecting with the most incredible Somali family. Um, who had lost their father in, uh, who was a human rights activist in the 1990s, moved to Canada, was a mom and three daughters. She didn't inherit anything because she was female. Um, so she moved to Canada with her daughters, raised them until they were old enough to make it on their own, teenagers. She goes back to continue his human rights work. And then they go back. Her daughters go over. They think they're going to go just for like the summer to hang out with their mom. And they never leave. So they found, so we co-found, they had been doing work on child soldiers, but women were showing up wanting help because they heard they were nice people. So we co-founded what we called Sister Somalia, the first sexual violence crisis center in Mogadishu. And again, total leap of faith. I mean, we founded it without any money. Like I, I, I thought we'll go, I'll go, we'll get some press, like, you know, with what happened with Congo and money will start to come in and not so. Like I came back, like it didn't matter that I'd raised all this money and people knew who I was and people weren't used to hearing me talk about Somalia. So like I'd be going to these house parties and trying to get like just begging people to pledge $10 a month. You know, Fartoon's putting in her, her own money to um, keep the center afloat because women have started to show up. And so I just keep pitching the press, pitching the press, pitching the press. I'm like harassing the New York Times. Like, you've got to cover this. Like, it's a huge problem. And finally, you know, after months of emails, I get an email back from Jeffrey Gettleman, who was the East Africa reporter saying, okay, I'm going to go to Mogadishu. Um, and he went and did just the most stunning cover story about rape in Somalia top main photo, main story on the cover of the New York Times. We raised several hundred thousand dollars, used that as a springboard to introduce Fartoon and Ilwad to major funders like the Novo Foundation, who have supported them very generously through the years for their women's rights work. Um, and so it just blossomed, right? And I think what, so my point being, <laughs> and I know I'm talking long, so cut me off. Um, my point being that in each of these three instances, I started something without having any idea how we were going to get it done. 
I did not necessarily have the skills to get it over the line. <laughs> I tried my best and it was a hell of a lot of effort, like months and years without having any idea what the payoff was going to be. And somehow through kind of like staking that out or taking that stand, boom, all of a sudden everything's different. And so I think what I learned in that process is when you leap, like, first of all, if you get that uh-oh feeling, like, okay, that doesn't seem right. Somebody's got to do something about that. No, no, no. There must be a reason no one's doing it. I don't know. And who am I to really do anything? I, and then you're like, no, I got to do something. I don't know what, and I don't know if it's going to matter, but I'm going to try every single time. It has just blossomed into something so much bigger than I could have imagined. And so that ended up really being the foundation for the next chapter, that feeling of like, I don't know, <laughs> sure doesn't seem right to me though. So I'm going to go for it. That is quite the powerful um, journey. And truly what stands out for me is that you just, you know, summoned all the courage you have to just go and start campaigning. And while confronting either like big tech companies or these patriarchal societies head on. And I also love how it came full circle with your inspiration to even tread down this path, starting with the Oprah Winfrey show to eventually you being on the show. Yeah. So thank yeah. you for taking us um, through all of that. So in you, you said earlier that being a girl wasn't safe. And I think that really sums up the idea behind the Every Woman Treaty. So can you take us through that and how did it all begin? Yeah, so effectively, I took a year off and I decided to get my master's degree at the Harvard Kennedy School. Again, showed up there kind of nervous, like, do I really belong? And uh, did fine took a class in global governance from a man named John Ruggie, who's the person who kind of came up with the Millennium Development Goals and the UN Global Compact. So I under, started to understand the UN system and I read uh, CDOP for the first time as I was looking, I thought of violence against women as a forgotten Millennium Development Goal. I, I wanted to write a paper on that. And as I read CEDAW, I realized it didn't even mention violence. And I was surprised by that. And it was one of those uh-oh feelings, like something's wrong here. This is a miss, right? Um, and then during our January term, I went to Somalia again, and this was really the catalyst. The week that I went to Somalia in January of 2013, it was about a year and a half after we'd started the center, cover story on the New York Times. And like, now women's rights are in the new Somali constitution. Women from the center are going out and they're talking to people, you know, in their communities, bringing them back to the center, pursuing justice. And then a woman is arrested for false accusations against the government because she she was alleged to have talked to a journalist about uh, being gang raped by government soldiers. And they subjected her to a finger test. Um, effectively, if they could fit more than two fingers inside of her, she could not have been raped. This is a woman who had birthed three children and was convicted because she couldn't pass the finger test, convicted of lying. And so an interesting thing happened that week. Um, because I, I co-founded the center, right? Like I helped organize so much and yet women wouldn't talk anymore. They wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't talk to each other. People were scared they were gonna be arrested. And I realized that in one predatory government act, you can wipe out all of that progress. The second thing I realized is finger tests aren't against international law. 
There's no rule against finger tests. Now, if you had an attorney, you might be able to file a case with the CEDAW committee in 18, 15, 10 years later, CEDAW might recommend that finger tests aren't a good idea, but I think we know finger tests aren't a good idea. We think, I think we know that they should be against international law. So what ended up happening in this woman's case is um, a petition was circulated, 700,000 signatures, and the Somali president was meeting with 27 foreign ministers that week trying to court aid for the new progressive Somalia. Well, because there was media buzz about what happened, all these foreign ministers brought it up in the meeting and they released the woman quietly. But what about all the women who don't have 700,000 signatures or 27 foreign ministers jumping to their defense? Something's wrong here, right? And the current system is not protecting her. For that woman to access justice in the current global system, she would have to know her rights exist, She'd, be ha she'd have to be able to find an attorney, take a lot of time off work, pursue every domestic remedy and exhaust them before filing a case in global court, which by the way, by its very rules, you are not allowed to do anonymously. So a woman who has already been arrested by the Somali government would have to come forward publicly, accuse the Somali government, Again, she's never going to do that. So there's no access for her. So that was kind of the beginning. And, you know, so we held a, a convening. Um, I'll tell you, actually, in the meantime, as I was doing more research, I ran across UN Special Rapporteur Rashida Manchu. And she was desperately calling for a global treaty. And if you talk with her, she'd say she had, she'd say, she'd tell you she had been since the early 1980s. I said to her once, you're the mother of the movement. She's like, no, I'm the grandmother of the movement. I've been around here a long time. Um, when I read that, I was like, okay, I, this is not something I'm just making up. There really is something missing here. And so from that point forward, we just started talking with activists around the world. Is there room for something different? ultimately a treaty only being an agreement. So the question is, what would we have to agree to for it to represent meaningful change for that woman in Somalia? And so it was from there that we entered years of dialogue with frontline activists from every corner of the world. That's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. The, the two finger test that you speak about actually is, it's something we're very familiar with in the most disappointing way of, of putting it here in India. Um, because it was very, I think, very much a part of the of the investigation process in in rape and sexual assault cases, and more recently, and even in Pakistan, I think it was uh, dismantled last year by one amazing one of one of the amazing women who was part of that group was also on our podcast earlier. So yeah, really? yeah, 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 you're absolutely um, okay to bring that up. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with it. But um, what, what's happening with the treaty currently, Lisa? What's going on um, on that front? Yeah, so we worked quietly for probably seven years, um, conducting multiple rounds of global consultation with frontline activists. Uh, and, you know, we did many special committees because we wanted to know, like, we didn't want to just kind of come up with some language if you're a woman with disabilities and an expert on violence against women, we want you to be the one drafting the language. <laughs> indigenous women should be the ones who are drafting language on indigenous women's rights. So 
there was a large global consultation, the heart of it being nothing about us without us, really for any group. So it was LGBTQI folks who inputted on what they thought that content should look like based on their very real context. Like if you're LGBTQI and you live in Africa, you know what would represent progress and how to frame it in a way that you're going to make, you're going to, you're going to gain some ground. So, um, so we went through that process. And then in 2019, we opened the dialogue with nations, started, started traveling to Geneva, uh, met with a bunch of nations uh, and developed kind of a core group of people who uh, feel comfortable in that context, human rights attorneys, frontline activists, and have continued uh, by rolling out a new fellowship program and uh, talking points training that prepared frontline activists to go have those meetings themselves. You know, I was in every meeting, I was in almost every diplomatic meeting in 2019, and I, I have been in one in 2020 and 2021. And that's because I don't feel like I'm not the one who should be speaking. <laughs> You know, I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to participate if it's useful, but it's more interesting to me to see a thousand other frontline activists learn how to talk to the media, how to get their message out there, how to go in and talk with diplomats and start to move policy. So it's been really exciting to see that happen. Um, that aside, um, it's the, the response has been fascinating. I mean, fascinating um, in that there are profound regional dynamics. And what I would say is mostly what we've heard is this is a totally great idea. Um, and who would be against this? Of course. Interestingly, the biggest opposition that we've run into so far have been people who feel that CIDA is good enough as it is, leave it alone. Um, the problem we have with that, of course, is that out of all of the cases CIDA has ever reviewed around violence against women, um, you know, more than 70% were from Europe, one from Canada. Uh, so black and brown women do not have access to justice through this system, period. And secondly, <clears throat> um, uh, this sense that don't rock the boat because we wouldn't want to negotiate right now. So there's, there's, there's some thinking around language, like the question, do you use gender-based violence or violence against women? There's a key point of tension in the women's movement. And interestingly, some nations would not like to negotiate a treaty um, because they would not like the word gender to be taken out. And of course, I'm, very strong feminist and I would love to see things like gender as a social construct in international law. I don't know that Saudi Arabia right now is going to sign a treaty that says gender is a social construct. Right. What I do care about a lot, and I think we can make progress on because it turns out everyone agrees is that we should stop killing, beating, raping and torturing women. That's actually something everyone agrees on. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say protecting women and girls' actual lives is more important than using the word gender. And to suggest anything less than that is a profound disservice to women and girls around the world. It's offensive. It's offensive. Um, and so, so I think the second, second sort of thing here, which seemed to shift a lot in diplomatic meetings, which was new, 
for some folks is they don't realize sometimes people will say, well, there's there are regional treaties. You know, you have Istanbul, which is the European uh, Maputo Protocol for Africa. And in fact, they're moving forward a new regional treaty in Africa on violence against women, Bellum de Para. And these are very powerful instruments. We could talk more about that. Um, but the problem is only 25% of females on earth are covered by those regional treaties. 75% of women are not covered by regional treaties, not the least of which is like, hello, Asia, China, India, you know? And so, so, so there's this kind of perception that I think people have not framed that. I'm not even sure people were thinking about that before we started doing some rounds here. So it was very common to go into a meeting with a European diplomat and invariably, invariably they would say, well, the Istanbul Convention is open um, for any nation to accede to it, to simply sign on to the treaty. The problem with that is that the Council of Europe didn't consult anyone outside of Europe. No nation is going to sign on <laughs> if they were never even asked what the treaty's content should be. And the truth is, and I, I, I have to be honest and say in meetings, I did get to the point where I was pretty comfortable saying, truth is, a lot of nations experience that as colonialist for you to say, well, why doesn't everybody just sign on to this thing? And I think in the sense that we've walked into a trap where um, violence, ending violence against women has been framed as a European export or an export of Western values, you could never literally export the treaty to end violence against women from Europe. It's not gonna be successful. And so in that sense, partnership from nations all over the world, particularly from, for lack of a better term, the global south or the developing world is incredibly important. That there's a community of nations coming together, creating this text together that will represent real progress. So, you know, I, you know, I will say that when it is framed back to European diplomats, the question of race um, and the experience of that being quasi-racist to suggest um, or to be comfortable with the status quo that European women simply have far more protection than black and brown majority nations around the world is a point of confrontation. And I think it raises some really interesting questions around ownership of issues. Because so long as we allow Europe to strictly own the global dialogue on violence against women, and yet they're not willing to prioritize change that will protect black and brown women everywhere, we have a very profound problem. You cannot both own the dialogue and say it's not important enough for progress. You can't do both things. So support or get out of the way. But I have found when I've spoken with nations that are black and brown majority, African nations, Asian nations, Latin American nations, Everybody's like, why would we be against this? It's such a good idea. So there's a dynamic there. And I think it, you know, like, look, I know from a diplomatic perspective for me to say that publicly on the record is um, probably not the most savvy thing, but at the same time, I've got to be real about what the dynamics are, right? Like, I think if we actually want to see every nation engage in the work of ending violence against women in a substantive, serious way, we've got to come together as partners rather than making what I will admit in a lot of European meetings, these nasty side comments about how Europe doesn't want to actually negotiate with black and brown majority nations. It's a real problem. 
thank you so much for that powerful articulation and i i just really love that you um brought out the fact that um there's a lot of colonial influence on this and how the global south is actually very important to this treaty so miss lisa how can the listener engage with the every women treaty um well the first thing that they can do is go to our website and sign the people's call to nations which is like the people's treaty um we always communicate um with governments about who from their need when we sit down with a government the first thing they want to know is like well who from my nation is behind this who do i know and how many of my citizens are behind this africa and south asia are big priority regions for us and so but what we've also found is like once someone once someone has signed on to the global treaty we'll then be communicating with you about what we're doing and we have now the thousand voices uh, fellowship program for people who are serious about ending violence against women being their their life work it's an intensive two week program that allows people to get familiar with international law media public speaking that kind of thing to become a global voice because you know like hey if i started like as couch potato being my grand grandest credential right anyone i i just am a firm believer that anyone and everyone has the power to lead the global conversation and so that's 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 what we're about here and um uh i think i think if people sign up for the treaty and then let your government know that you're a supporter um one thing that we have done at various points and i would encourage people to do is take a pair of red shoes or a collection of red shoes and place them in front of a government building or in an open square photograph it and share it in social media as a way of remembering women who are missing who have died who have been murdered um and when you do that make sure that you're calling for a global treaty and global systems change but keep the conversation going meet with anyone in a position of power or influence on social media um meeting with your own government officials or pursuing more training so you can be a bigger more powerful voice um uh, are all roots but it is look i stumbled into all of it <laughs> when i like when we started every woman just like asking questions of global ask activists i had no idea nor was i terribly familiar with international law you can only take that the un special rapporteur on violence against women probably you know in that case had some interesting perspectives uh, as rashida monju did so you know you 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 learn as you go and you don't have i think the most important thing for people to understand is to step onto the global stage or to step into policy influence and systems change you do not have to know everything before you start you have to partner with really smart people <laughs> and share the credit and the spotlight uh and every one of us play our role but what i do know is it's time for sure the time has arrived we we spoke with someone recently and i won't i won't name them but they said there is not a modicum of sense that we would have to ask for a global treaty at this point it's just so obvious so that's where we are Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lisa, for those amazing answers and for taking us through your journey and for telling us how we can stay engaged as well. It was an absolutely amazing experience having you with us on Feminifesto. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.